Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to yet another episode of the AJ Bruno Show. Today we are shifting gears somewhat yet again. I'm joined by Michael Phillips. He is one of the most prominent film critics in the country with the Chicago Tribune. He's formerly co-hosted at the movies and as well as introduced many films for Turner Classic Movies. Hello, Michael. Hello. Thanks for coming on. I'm so sorry about this. Horsing around. Sure, no sorry about that. Not a problem. So I want to... So where are, you? Where, where are you, man? I'm in uh, New Jersey. Oh, okay. Beautiful. Yeah. So uh, I assume you're in Chicago now. Yes. That's great. <laughs> so I want to get into your background first. Uh, how did you decide you wanted to be a film critic, and what was the process like of actually finding yourself in that position? Yeah, I mean, it goes back to all the stuff I was interested in as a kid. Uh, I, I was, uh, you know, I, I grew up in uh, the pre the VCR era when, when you, uh, you know, if you grew up in a town like Racine, Wisconsin, and you were lucky enough to get um, late night or afternoon movies uh, in two different markets, Milwaukee and Chicago <laughs> for free, um, then you became a film critic. I, I'm convinced that was it. Uh, um, and I, you know, I wrote about movies for the high school paper, um, at a time when, you know, I, I think it was just sheer good fortune to, to bump into you know, popular summer hits like the Jaws and Star Wars that were worth actually worth writing about. And then seeing stuff that was a little over your head, like Taxi Driver back in 76, when I, you know, and I, when I think of the review I wrote at the age of 15 uh on taxi driver i i don't i doubt it will hold up today you know <laughs> but <laughs> but all that sort of paves the way and then in college um it was uh it was another great stroke of fortune to work for a uh, a college newspaper that was well funded aid the writers and let you pursue your interests seriously uh this is up in the twin cities at the university of minnesota and although I wrote mostly about theater for them, I did a lot of film too. And those are the two subjects I've kind of gone back and forth on my whole life. Although it's obviously been um, um, all movies the last 15 years again. Great. So you've worked at a bunch of different papers in various cities. Uh, were they all a combination of theater and film review? And, and how do they compare to being at the Tribune now? Yeah, so that's uh first job out of college was uh uh first full-time job was as arts editor of the weekly one of the weeklies in Minneapolis called City Pages. Um and I I started as a film critic there while I was still in school back in 83. Uh uh but then the first full-time daily newspaper job I got was down in uh, Dallas. Uh, and that was theater. And yeah, it was mostly theater there for, you know, between the 25 and 40. But then, um, uh, you know, by the time I got to the Tribune back in 2002 as the theater critic, I talked to the editors pretty quickly and said, you know, by the time I'm 50, I'd like to kind of get back to movies. That's, that's, you know, the other thing I'm 
I'm good at, and I, I'm. It's time, you know. I knew it was time because when you know material plays, musicals, whatever would come around again, and it, it was material I loved, you know, if it was done right. Um, but I somehow wasn't as interested in revisiting it. I knew it was time to change beats because uh, you got to have a full tank on this stuff. And yeah, with movies, I, uh, I, I did, and I do. So that you know, Tribune was was yeah, it was it was just sheer again. It was just a series of lucky breaks for me. That's how I really look at my whole career. <laughs> a lot of breaks and a little talent. Uh, but sure. you know, it was the fact that they were game for a change. Uh, and they were actually interested in making a change uh, in personnel at that point, um, you know, was, 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 uh, you know, to my benefit. And, um, uh, you know, it, it's it, the great thing about this job, wherever you do it or however you do it, whatever medium you do it in, if it's mostly podcasting, radio, whatever, online, even dear old print, like we still write for here's the trip, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's like continuing education, and for a guy who never went to graduate school, uh, it's it's like a free uh, 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 continuing education course. Fantastic. So, what is your typical schedule like in terms of how many movies you actually watch, and what's your process for evaluating them? Um, it changes depending on the week and the material and the demands of the job and my life, but. Uh, it's, um, uh, you know, I'm usually reviewing between four and six uh, films. There's also a lot of related viewing uh, for research crowns because you know, there's always more to see that you haven't seen that may or may not pertain to what you actually are reviewing. Uh, and you just got to keep up, you know, and then there's all that. And I, I, like to, I like to do a lot of interviews and have to do some features too, so... Um, we do some video, we do all kind. you know, they're, they're trying everything, everything, every month at the Tribune right mm-hmm. now. So, um, uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I always tell my students, cause I do a little teaching on the side, uh, if you're stuck for how to begin any kind of evaluation, any review, any piece at all, it usually means that your subconscious is telling you you probably don't know enough yet. And so what I try to do every week on the job is is keyboard having learned enough, not this not decided enough, but learned enough that'll calm me down at the keyboard and kind of get me going. You know what I mean? Like okay, I right. I know I know a few things on this subject. Now I can kind of take what I know and think about it and really see what I um, you know what's behind the word why? You know that's the key word in criticism because any any jackass can have an opinion on anything, <laughs> and you know it usually comes out. And this is in the this is in the professional ranks. It usually comes out mostly generalities and bullshit. But but you can actually get to the the interesting reasons of why something uh, hits you a certain way or why you resisted. Uh, engagement with this director or this story, uh, or why why you're why you're almost consistently uh, enchanted by some actress or actor, no matter how lousy the material. You know, it's always the why, 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 and the details. 
uh, that make the interesting reading. Hmm. Makes sense. Makes sense. So when you're actually watching these films, do you just commit everything to memory when you do reviews later, or do you have to constantly pause and take notes? How does that work? When I'm watching stuff on screen or link uh, at home or on my own schedule, uh, I, I, I pause and, and take notes usually on a separate file on the keyboard. So, you know, if you watch a two-hour film that way, it takes about two hours and 45 minutes to to do it that way. And then you have, a, you know, you have a reasonable bunch of notes. When I'm doing things, the majority of what I see is at a screening at the screening room in the loop um, with a small group of, uh, you know, critics, uh, a couple dozen maybe or less, uh, or a promotional screening at night, Monday, Tuesday night for, you know, Thursday night opening. Um, that's just, you know, notebook and pen and, and illegible notes <laughs> in my case. But it's, you know, yeah, no, you can't, you know, my memory's for shit. So <laughs> if I don't write it down, if I don't type it down, then, then you don't, again, you don't have, then you don't have enough concrete evidence or just mm-hmm. details, or, or even just notes to yourself for later reasons. Like, check this. Is this in the book? You know what I mean? Like when you're watching a adaptation of something and you think, oh, that's an interesting change. And I don't think it was in the book. But you don't know. You don't know for sure. Mm-hmm. It's just you're writing a note to yourself. You know, you're hardly doing any real writing while you're watching a movie. You're just, you, you know, you're just um, writing. It's like post-it notes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes sense. So, when you're grading out of four stars, how do you determine whether something, for example, gets 2.5 or three stars? And where is the line that makes a movie good in your view? Yeah, it's hilarious because this week was like a classic, you know, three, I, can, I know at least three of the movies I saw fell right along that bubble of like one's, one's two, one's two and a half, one's three. It's, these are, these are kind of crazy, um, value judgment systems, but we got to live with them. Right. Um, right. in my book, uh, a three is a solid recommendation. You know, three means good. It doesn't mean, th- I, I think as much as I loved Roger Ebert and kind of revere what he accomplished in his career, uh, and what he could, what he could do with the keyboard. He, he was a fairly easy grader. And a three from him was sort of disappointing. I, I, I don't, that's not how, that's not the definition of three. I go by sort of the Leonard Malton classic definition of one star poor, two stars fair, three stars good, and four excellent. And then you get the half stars in between. But, you know, four doesn't necessarily mean flawless or a masterpiece. It just means it has a hell of a lot of what you want out of whatever that film is trying to do. Um, and, uh, you know, two and a half, that, that can be, in some cases that can be sort of a moderately, uh, engaging, you know, uh, you know, something that may or may not be for everybody, but, uh, you know, it, or it can be sort of a disappointment from a major director. Uh, if, if what you're seeing is, uh, shrewdly crafted and maybe uh, impressive in many ways, but not quite what it should be. You know, that to me, that sounds maybe like you're heading toward two and a half stars, <laughs> you know, uh, which of course people detest because they, you know, people want to know, well, does that mean, should I go or shouldn't I? Um, mm. But that's the problem with two and a half stars. It means fairly good. Now you tell me if that's worth seeing. That's, it's really more up to you. Yeah. 
sure. based on the description, based on based on the description, and you know, um, um, you know, whatever whatever I'm saying that might that might then logically lead you to kind of like take up the argument in your own mind, saying, well, actually, didn't this guy didn't love what this movie was up to, but it sounds like my kind of thing. And so even if it's uh, was slightly disappointing to him, it sounds like it might it might do the job for me. So yeah, you know, you, you want to keep the door a little bit open on these things. Sure. So you mentioned Roger Ebert. Um, I used to be a big fan of at the movies. Uh, what did you do differently in reviewing films for that program, and what can you tell us about co-hosting it? About what was the last? I'm sorry. What, what can you, what can I tell you? Sorry, about? what can you tell us about you know what what it was like co-hosting that show? Yeah. Well, it was it was it was. Uh, a difficult pleasure let's say that um it was it was uh i had to learn a lot very quickly about uh short form argumentation you know you had you had about 70 90 seconds to actually discuss a film and your co-host uh was determined to take up at least 60 to 75% of the airtime. <laughs> and I speak for myself too. Uh, uh, so you, know, you had to get, really get in there and say the one thing that you really want to say about that um, film under discussion or that stupid argument you just heard from the other guy. Right. And right. yeah, you know, to do all that, to do all that without it just degenerating into Fox news style, um, uh, overlapping uh, babble, you know, uh, was difficult. And, and, and when it worked, it was, you know, kind of stimulating. And it certainly wasn't the last word in anybody's critical response to a film, but it, it was kind of the first argument, not the last word. Um, it was fun. It was fun to do. It was great. It was fun. You know, I learned a few things from Richard Roper uh, and I learned different things from A.O. Scott when we did it. Um, and you know, by the time Tony and I got our season with it, we, we had the hunch, which was eventually confirmed that it was going to be the last season, almost no matter what, because they were just running out, uh, contracts with the stations and they needed one more, you know, the one more season of whatever, 39 weeks or whatever it was. Uh, so it was a pleasure to be on that last year. The pressure in a funny way was off because, <laughs> because you know, there wasn't much hope for it at that point. Um, although, you know, like everything in television, it's kind of a numbers game and, and a story of time slots. I mean, in the, in the markets where we had favorable time slots for that show in that final iteration, uh, we did pretty well in the ratings and mm. in the markets, especially the smaller markets where we were on at 2.05 AM after the gold bond medicated cream ads. And just before the ab roller commercials, uh, it, you know, we, we were struggling. So that, that's, you know, that's, if everybody had great time slots, everybody would probably do pretty well on television. Right. No. <laughs> I used to tape it. So that wasn't a problem, but, <laughs> there you um, go. <laughs> so you've uh, also introduced quite a few films on Turner Classic Movies. Uh, how did that come about, yeah. and which of those would you most recommend people see? Oh, oh that's fun. Yeah, I, that was a, that was a wonderful, a wonderful surprise to be, to meet Robert Osborne uh, when he came through town. I think when Jane. Oh God, I don't remember if it was Mitzi Gaynor or Jane Powell. 
came through with a Turner Classic Movies uh, event at the Music Box Theater here in Chicago, which is a beautiful old 1929 theater. And, um, you know, Robert introduced it because he was the host at that time. And, you know, I interviewed... it was Jane Powell. I interviewed Jane Powell uh, separately, and then I talked to Robert separately, and um, didn't use much of Robert's um, conversation in, the, in that story. But it was a great, it was a great meeting him. And uh, and then he just gave me a call and said, "Look, I'm going in for some surgery, or I'm taking a few months off. Um, uh, you know, I'm having some people fill in. Do you want to do one?" I said, uh, "You betcha." And uh, so uh, I bought a new tie and uh, brought all my clothes. And um, and then the second time they called me uh, for another month of, of introductions, uh, the, the wardrobe woman, a fantastic woman named Holly down there in Atlanta, where they film mostly, uh, said, yeah, you know those clothes you brought last time when we filmed? I said, yeah. I said, don't bring any of those clothes. <laughs> and they were, I realized they were mostly they were, they were mostly either my father's or my ex father in law's old suits, and they really did look like a guy who had just gone by the um, you know the homeless shelter to pick up a new pair of you know kind of a a new pair of uh, pants. Uh, so I, I I I was I was happy to buy some actual uh, new clothes for that second taping, and then they they had me back for a couple more after that. And, and then, unfortunately, Robert died, and um, you know, cha- a change of management and strategy. And they have you know two very good new hosts, Dave Carger and Alicia Malone, uh, introducing work. And um, you know, I, I don't think I, I think my my run on that is probably wrapped up but uh but it was it was a great thing to do every year or two <laughs> and i you know i guess the best interview i think the best intros was um i don't know i remember really enjoying like the bad and the beautiful which is a vincent minnelli melodrama with kirk douglas i've always liked a lot and uh i i knew a lot about that film and was able to kind of bring some background and a little bit of historical uh, detail to to that, you know, and it's a pretty tightly scripted two minute intro with like a, a, maybe a fifty second outro, um, and it, you know, for whatever reason, because I did some theater in high school and college, uh, somehow the prompter was always my friend. I never had a problem with the teleprompter, and I managed to look in my way, you know, reasonably comfortable uh, for long stretches at a time without the camera cutting you know on uh, with those intros that was it was it was interesting practice for me to do that sometimes there's an enormous disconnect between reviews and fans uh for example a lot of fans felt the last jedi was an atrocious movie yet the critics loved it what do you make of something like that yeah a lot of critics liked it uh i liked it a lot i i also think that there's always been a schism between um um, a lot of critical opinion and a lot of popular um, uh, box office response. It just is, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, a lot of these movies we review, uh, and you know, are are part of a franchise um, or a specific kind of subset of you know, you know, like the Marvel universe or. Uh, further down the scale, the DC stuff, 
um, or, you know, the Star Wars reboots and franchises that, um, I don't know, if you look at, if you look at your least favorite examples of those personally, if you look at your personal least favorite examples of those, after a while they get to be like, uh, oh, a new Olive Garden opened. Let's go review it. You know, and is it very much like the Olive Garden four miles away on the other side of town? Yeah, that's the whole point. And this is a little bit, I mean, and of course, the creative artists putting these these movies uh, into development, you know, would argue with every single thing I just said, because they, they, they want to make sure that every Marvel character has its own kind of shape and, and tone and, and, and narrative destiny and the fact that they all intertwine now and then in these sort of all-star gang affairs is, is uh, just sort of a bonus for the fans, you know, and, and mm-hmm. um, you know, look at, look at uh, infinity war. I mean, that made over a billion and uh, I never want to see it again. You know, why, why did I like <laughs> last Jedi? I don't know. I, partly because I think Ryan Johnson's a really sharp uh, writer and director. And I also don't have any, uh, notions of um, fidelity or uh, reverence when it comes to the Star Wars mythology. I like some of the movies a lot. Uh, I, I don't like a lot of the movies, and I'm talking about the Lucas ones too. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I don't. I just don't have. I mean, for a lot of people, uh, it's the national religion, and I, I, I don't. Uh, you know, I don't agree. I mean, I, I, they can agree or I, I don't have to agree. I just, you know, we all share the same planet and, and we're getting along fine, but, uh, um, it's just not how I, it's not how I experience those films. Even at the age of 16, I like star Wars. Fine. I saw it three times, I think four times when it came out, because that's how it was meant to be seen. It was meant to be played like a video game. And that was relatively new back then, that kind of, Easily dispo- easily reviewable, uh, action-oriented uh, serial like the old Saturday matinee serials. It's it's ripping off. I mean, look, we only have Star Wars in our lives because George Lucas couldn't get the rights to remake Flash Gordon. You know, so he made he made his own version of Flash Gordon. That's you know you can't argue with that. I mean, and good for him. And um, I certainly admire his business acumen for tying up the merchandising rights. That was, that was, that was the most inspired stroke of genius. You know, that was the most inspired stroke of genius he had. Is he my favorite director? No, not even, not even in that genre. Hmm. So on, on that note, um, who are some of your favorite directors, filmmakers and actors whose work you most enjoy and what is it about them in particular? Um, I mean, you can talk about old Hollywood or you can talk about, you know, the, um, the new world, but, uh, um, I, I, you know, with old Hollywood, there's, there's so many people I go back to and I'm still kind of discovering, um, uh, all of what they were really up to. Uh, I love Minnelli. I love, uh, I love, uh, Howard Hawks. I love, uh, Orson Welles, um, you know, I I I love uh, what they were able to do within the studio system, and then of course with Wells, way 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 outside it. Um, and and you know, today I, you know, I I think I think I I despair most for how difficult it is to uh, get um, a reasonably adventurous medium budget movie made in this country. Um, but I take heart from 
the 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 best of the low budget independent work like something like you know the problems though it may have boots riley sorry to bother you i thought it was like okay now we're talking um and uh you know i i've seen even things coming out later this year where I, you just think okay now 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 this is what i'm talking about something like steve mcqueen's widows that's a really sharp and beautifully acted uh, piece of pulp fiction that, you know, Gillian Flynn and McQueen adapted from an old BBC, no, no, I'm sorry, not BBC, an old um, British miniseries from the eighties. And it's set in Chicago and it's, you know, it's got a really interesting cast, Viola Davis and Liam Neeson and Colin Farrell. And uh, you know, it's Michelle Rodriguez is in it. And it's just a really, really satisfying, but sort of off, uh, um, unconventional, off-formula uh, crime thriller. And, uh, you know, I when I saw it, I thought, you know, I haven't seen a movie like this in a while. And, of course, I think in better days, you'd see, you'd see something like that out of the major studios routinely. Um, hmm. So I hope, this, I hope that one finds an audience. It's good. Sure. <laughs> huh. huh. So do you think there's been a shift to how movies are evaluated these days and the sorts of films that the Academy recognizes? That the Academy recognizes? Yes. You, um, well, yeah. And of course they're, they're twi- twisting in the wind right now to deciding whether or not to open up, not this year, but now next year, possibly this, this, what I think is a ridiculous uh, category of, you know, best popular movies. Like, you know, as Mark Harris said on Twitter, he's a wonderful uh, critic and the author who wrote Five Came Back and Pictures from a Revolution. Mark Harris said, you know, there already is an award uh, for for most popular movie. It's called Money. <laughs> and <laughs> you know, I think I think if you you know look you look at the history of the Oscars, it's it's mostly about money makers. Um, and yeah, more more recently, you you've gotten a lot of smaller somewhat stranger or less overtly commercial pictures getting the top oscar some of which i really loved like moonlight some of which i liked like the shape of water um um and you know some films which i don't really have much use for like crash or i don't know a beautiful mind um braveheart i mean you know this some films i don't personally care about but um, a lot of them that I do. So I think it, I, I think it's, um, I, I think the more they diversify the ranks in the voting Academy members, the, hopefully the more interesting the, um, the choices will be. And, uh, I don't think uh, that adding a most popular movie Oscar category does anything except, um, represent a, a, a uh, an attempt to get better ra- TV ratings. And, um, and maybe that's reason enough. It certainly is for ABC. And uh, since ABC and Disney are part of the same company, we'll certainly see a, um, the occasional Marvel Infinity Wars picture, uh, Avengers Infinity Wars picture, uh, or its equivalent, um, receiving one of those awards. Mm-hmm. No, I could definitely see that happening. Um, but there seems to definitely have been a shift because they don't seem to have the same inclination towards 
I guess, action or history-oriented movies than they might have in the past. I mean, with something like Gladiator winning or Schindler's List or Braveheart that you mentioned, it seems like a movie like that, if it was made now, probably wouldn't have a chance. Well, I'm not sure about that. I think I might argue with you on that. It depends on how they are. Yeah, you know, I, I guess I'd like to see uh, what I need to hear would be like a specific example of like, well, Ian, now why didn't this get nominated or why didn't this win? Um, you know what I mean? Right. I mean, that's you fun. could say, you know, that that's that's what I would need to hear. I would, uh, or you could even, you know, extend the argument to like, why don't they make as many of these anymore? Yeah. Um, and I think largely the answer there is just that you know the the studios that might have the the finances of the financial wherewithal to make these or you know their their quarters are sort of dominated by like the tentpole picture or the franchise item that has to return to the stockholders um mm-hmm. and there's not a lot of room in the in the slate i think like there used to be to oh okay well actually this one is worth maybe maybe this one's worth um and um you know when you look at the i mean i mean we all we all look back whether you know you can look back as recently as 10 15 20 years but you can also look back when it was not hard to find a movie you know in the 50s and 60s where you got you know directors like David Lean or Anthony Mann or you know you know a movie like I get my favorite gladiator movie is Spartacus you know <laughs> and that's a yeah, film that's that actually <laughs> you know yeah it's fantastic and you know, it's my kind of epic because it's really, it's really, it's, you know, it's really interesting writing and it's a, um, it's got a lot of sweep, but it's also about human beings. And, um, you know, I mean, you can come back to that one your whole life. And that's, that's really the mark of a good film, whatever it is, I think, even if it's as small as, and sort of drab in its settings and its size as a movie like Spotlight, which won the Oscar. And I think deservedly more recently, just a few years ago, you can come back to that and sort of just fall back into it and just sort of realize that, you know what, they're telling this story beautifully. They're t- they found a way to do it. They found a way to do it. And, um, you know, there's a reason that film is a full step up from Spielberg's more recent The Post, because that, that's, just, that's got an inflated feeling of trying a little too hard to make its points and... Uh, um, you know, find a find a way to tell its story. And frankly, I think they, they they were very conscious making the post of trying to find a way to tell a newspaper story without copying Spotlight, which had just come out and mm-hmm. won the Oscar. You know, um, so anyway, of course, I'm I'm fond of newspaper stories because I work for them. And uh, you know, if you talk to me again in 20 years, AJ, I don't think uh, you know I I don't know if we'll have newspapers uh, in the conversation. Oh well, they keep saying that. And- They've survived so far, so who knows? So far, so far. Mm-hmm. So, do you think there's any sort of inherent bias against sequels? In most cases, they might not be as good. But, for example, take Back to the Future. I thought the sequel was just as good as the original. Yet, critically, that one was received more maybe in the middle to lukewarm. Um, and a movie like Major League critics liked the original, but the sequel they hated. Uh, so what do you right. what do you think of a situation like that? Um, I mean, I think people are a little a little cranky about them, and uh, you know, just, you can always the the ones you're not the ones you can never bring to mind are the ones that that came and went through your memory, just you know, because they weren't very good. But yeah, absolutely, you can look at. I mean, look, look the most the most 
sterling example, uh, staring you right in the face that won the Oscar was The Godfather 2. That's a better film than yeah. the first Godfather. I mean, they're both fantastic, but they're both very different. And the second one is just trying more. You know, it's, it's going a little, it's caring less about the audience uh, demands for a, for a straight up gangster picture. And uh, it's just getting into it's getting into character in a way that uh, you know I, I really stuck with me. I saw that one when I was fourteen, I think, and that that really hit me hard. Um, and that it also when you see a movie like that, like the second Godfather picture that is, you know runs almost three and a half hours, and it takes its time, but finds you know certainly found its audience, had plenty of story to fill out those three and a half hours, and just just you know, made full, uh, amazing use of the resources they had when you look at those little Italy sequences with De Niro. And, I mean, this is great. And, you know, and that was also the same year that Cop, Francis Coppola put up The Conversation, which is a terrific film. It did not find an audience, a much of an audience at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, in its way, it's almost as good as The Godfather film. Yeah. I don't think I've seen The Conversation, but with The Godfather... I always go back and forth with the first and second one. They're both great. Maybe I'd give a slight edge to the second one. I think De Niro, De Niro was great in that movie too. Um, the third one, obviously, not so much. But no, I, I remember yeah. liking the Andy Garcia sequences. You know, frankly, I've never seen that film more than once. The one yeah. I really want to see again uh, that I had mixed feelings about when it came out uh, was the Cotton Club from '84, and that and that's um, uh, I think a year ago at Telluride. Uh, Coppola introduced a uh, a director's cut of that uh, with about twenty or twenty five additional minutes and a slight slightly re-edited structure and much longer musical numbers um, uh, that they were always cutting away from abruptly in the in the release version and uh, I think that film uh, the response was really strong to that and I, I'm, I'm I'm excited to see it sometime I hope I hope it comes through in some form. Um, through Chicago at some point, or out your way. I mean, it'd be worth a look if you've never seen it. Not much of a. I mean, it, yeah. you know, no one, no one has a particular love for the Cotton Club, um, uh, especially in relation to Coppola's greatest works. But, but just to hear that there's another version out that's longer and a little more itself, hopefully, uh, you know, very enticing. Yeah, definitely. So, while uh, looking ahead, or, or more recently, is there uh, are there any movies that have been out so far this year? or coming out that you think are ones to keep an eye out for or possibly contenders for the next Oscars? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, what did I just say that, uh, I'm trying to think, this is where the recent, the recent past, AJ is my worst, uh, my worst subject <laughs> in terms of memory. It's just <laughs> awful. This guy's just coming out of a couple of festivals and I've just, you know, I've seen too many things, but, um, yeah. You know, I really, I really love this Alfonso Cuarón movie, Roma. I mean, that's that's really, and you got to see that on the big screen. It's got these huge, detailed widescreen compositions that are not going to not going to hold up too good on an iPhone. But uh, uh, <laughs> Widows, as I said, is really strong. Um, uh, you know, there's so much I haven't seen yet that came out of the Toronto and Telluride cycle, but. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, there's, and then smaller films, like even, I mean, again, it's not all about awards, right? I mean, a, a lot of it's just, um, you know, a film like The Hate You Give is like a really good, you know, kind of a young adult literature adaptation that's just like so much better than most of the movies I've seen lately. Um, 
you know, I don't yeah. I mean, it's, right now it's a, the fall, you know, it's award season, but like a lot of the weeks we, we go through with movies, and you probably feel this way, it's like you, you sort of just, you take your pleasures where you can get them, you know. Like I was pleasantly yeah. surprised with this biopic Colette about the French writer that Kira Knightley plays in the film. And, you know, I've, it looks frankly a little, uh, you know, a little insufferable from the trailers. I'm not even quite sure why, but the film is actually much sharper and, um, and it's more fun than that. And, it, uh, you know, it's a story that most American audiences don't know. And, um, yeah, is it, is it awards worthy? Maybe, but, um, you know, mainly just sort of on its own terms, it, it really did the job. It's a, it's a really, it's a really interesting period picture. Sure. Well, uh, thanks again for coming on. It was a interesting conversation and I hope maybe we'll see you in an at the movies revival or something like that. Who knows, man? Just work on the funding and give me a call. (laughs) Sure thing. All right. Thanks, guys. All right, AJ. Take care. You too. That was Michael Phillips, film critic, and uh, good conversation we had there once more. So we'll be back again soon with another episode. And thanks again for joining. And if you haven't done so yet, please do follow the Twitter account at Reagan Worldwide, at Reagan Worldwide, and be sure to check that out. All right, until next time, this has been A.J. Bruno. I'm signing off for now.